Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's uh, lecture. My name is Kevin Featherstone from the European Institute here at the LSE, and I will be chairing the session. Uh, tonight's lecture is hosted both by the European Institute and the Darendorf Programme here at the school, which is part of LSE Ideas. We're delighted to welcome our speaker. Of course, many of you are here. A number of people will be watching live streamed. Uh, the lecture, the event is going to be podcast, and that will be available in a few days' time. Uh, so there is a lot of interest. I know we're tight for time, so I'm going to try to make the introduction very brief. It is our great pleasure to welcome the, Dimitris Avramopoulos, uh, who is the EU Commissioner for Migration, Home Affairs and Citizenship. Before becoming Commissioner, uh, Dimitris had an extensive political career in Greek politics, having been Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of National Defense, uh, Mayor of Athens, other ministerial posts as well. But of course he's here to focus on migration. And let me just simply give one brief signal we're here to talk about migration. <laughs> Other local points of interest, for example, Brexit. <laughs> Sorry, be long. <laughs> okay, it's a psychological thing, okay? <laughs> as soon as I mention Brexit, the world collapses. Uh, but... Uh, a discussion on Brexit belongs at another event, etc. We're tight for time. Migration is, in all seriousness, a tremendous challenge uh, to the European Union, uh, to Europe's uh, governments. Uh, in some senses, perhaps it's almost an existential challenge to what we mean by Europe, the European identity, the European purpose, etc. So we have many important things to uh, discuss in that respect. As an LSE event, we have a hashtag uh, which you can uh, respond to and give us your comments. It's hashtag LSE migration. Uh, you can give us your comments on that. We look forward to it. Uh, we're inviting the Commissioner to speak uh, relatively briefly in order that we can maximize the time for uh, comments and questions uh, from you, the audience. So, without further ado, can you please join me in giving a very warm welcome to the European Commissioner, Dimitris Avramopoulos. Well, good evening. Good evening, everybody. Kevin, thank you very much for your uh, welcoming uh, words. Um, I'm more than happy to be here, actually. Uh, I had uh, postponed three times in the past my visit to this um, uh, university, but... Uh, Today, as I said, uh, I'm very glad to share some uh, moments with you and also share thoughts with you. As uh, your professor said before, I was, in the, be in the beginning, this is what they believed in Europe, that it was the unlucky one to be entrusted such an important portfolio because I could never imagine in the year 2014 when I was designated commissioner that in a very short period of five months, the two main topics, the main issues of my portfolio would be on the top, not of the European, but of the global agenda. So they said he's an unlikely one. But believe me, four years and a half after that date, 
I believe that I was like them, because at least I had something to do. And today, I'm going to tell you what Europe has done during these last four and a half years in order to address these two challenging issues, both migration and security. So for me, believe me, it is a great honor to be here in this uh, leading academic institution of the United Kingdom, of Europe, and of the world. Your uh, alma mater is renowned for its research knowledge and understanding of the political and the social sciences with a view to contributing to the better governance of our democracies and societies. Rerum conoscere causas is your university motto, to know the causes of things. Well, what I have come to talk to you about this evening will demonstrate how difficult that aspiration may sometimes be. As I said before, I have been European Commissioner for Migration, Home Affairs, and Citizenship for the past four and a half years. I expect that uh, most of you here follow the news regularly, so it will not come to your surprise when I say that uh, things have been rather busy for us. Things have been busy for us in the European Union for reasons that are precisely linked to the LSE's very own motto. You see, sometimes you do know why things happen, but it is difficult to respond coherently or in the right way at the right time. Sometimes you know what should happen, but not everyone will want to listen or be on board in advance. The migration and refugee crisis has been a prime example of that. Other times you don't have all the reasons why certain things happen, but still you have to find solutions. This has been the case with the threats against our security, and in particular terrorism. We meet here under not the most auspicious of times in Europe, and we all know that. As uh, students, alumni, and supporters of the LSE's European Institute, I'm again not telling you anything new. The unity of Europe has been increasingly put into question over the past few years. First, the financial crisis. Then, precisely, the migration crisis. Several terrorist attacks, including also in this beautiful city. Disinformation campaigns targeting our elections and our democracies. Brexit. And throughout all of that, the continuous rise of populism and nationalism. 
All these changes, all these geopolitical developments have given a pretext, have opened the door to nationalists and populists to purge in and start unraveling our social fabric and cohesion. And yet, these are not the first or only difficult times that we have encountered in our shared history. To some of you, this may seem long ago, but Europe and the European Union that we have today was precisely born out of very dire times more than 60 years ago. Most importantly, it demonstrated how cooperation, solidarity, and responsibility triumphed over rivalry, division, and destruction. Historical memory is critical to connect our past with our present, to understand our present better, but also to shape our future. Let me, therefore, go back a few years, bringing us to the topic of this evening. In the year 2015, Europe was confronted with a large number of vulnerable and desperate people seeking refuge on its shores. At that time, the European Union and its member states were unprepared and taken by surprise. Europe had no idea how to cope with it. And member states, especially the front-line member states. However, we couldn't afford to stay unprepared and idle anymore. We had to act, and we did. In that same year already, we took several concrete and immediate measures to respond to the crisis in the Mediterranean, as well as the necessary steps to better manage migration in all its aspects, both internal and external, now but also in the coming years. Ranging from hotspots in Italy and Greece, where everyone arriving could be registered and fingerprinted to closer cooperation with third countries, such as Turkey and the Western Balkans, and creating a fully-fledged European Borders and Coast Guard. We have been working, believe me, hard and with great determination from the very beginning on solutions based on solidarity and responsibility these two fundamental principles upon which the European project is built. Because the essence of our objective is in a European family, you help each other out. Today, the results of our joint efforts over these past few years are very tangible. The numbers are back to and even below the pre-crisis years. To give you an illustration, arrivals have dropped by 95% on the sea crossing from Turkey to Greece, and by 80% on the route from sub-Saharan and northern Africa through Libya. On top of that, our EU operations have helped rescue over 800,000 people at sea since 2015. An essential part of our policy has been 
international synergies. Beyond our effective cooperation with Turkey and the Western Balkans, as I mentioned, we have stepped up our cooperation also with uh, North and Sub-Saharan Africa, not only to intensify returns and readmissions, as some believe, but also to build strategies to address the root causes of migration. In this context, I am also very happy with what we achieved with the international community with the global, the global Compacts on Refugees and Migration. It was the European Union that was one of the driving and inspiring forces behind these compacts and behind the United Nations Summit on Migration more than two years ago now. For the very first time, we have managed to engage the global community to commit to work together on something that is indeed global, the movements of migration and refugees. How to better deal with those and share, and share responsibility. But our biggest challenge in the whole question about migration is, of course, not numbers. It is attitude. It is perception. You see, migration is a phenomenon that has always been with us. People have been on the move for centuries for different reasons. Today that we are here, around 70 million people around the world have been displaced, and more than 250 million are more generally on the move for a variety of reasons. This means that we cannot just apply stopgap or emergency measures. This means we have to be bold enough to think long-term, because we need a system that is truly shared and future-proof at the same time. But this requires us to see that there is not only irregular migration, but also legal and regular migration and mobility. It also requires us to continue defending the basic principles of the Geneva Convention and the essence of our common European asylum policy. Those who have a well-founded fear, who are fleeing war and persecution, and who are in seek of protection, should receive shelter. Unfortunately, short-term thinking and alarmist discourses are poisoning our citizens on a daily basis. They instill fear and xenophobia. We know fear has increasingly eroded the links and the trust between our citizens, making some of them believe that it is by turning inward that we become safer. However, it is not by building mental or physical walls that we become safer. We become only more isolated instead. You all know that we have European elections in five months. 
Many say that migration will have a decisive influence in the debate, and it will. Only it will not be really about migration. Migration is a vehicle used by populists and nationalists. These elections will be about something bigger and more fundamental, about whether we want to close ourselves off and build those walls. The essence of the elections will be about whether we choose to revert to the past and the illusion that we can leave behind closed borders. Well, this will be the main issue that will prevail in this debate in view of the elections. In other words, this way later would mean turning towards uh, the previous generations as it happened before and we have many examples from the past to turn them to the abyss. Or it will be about another option, about whether we want to work together, to coexist, to face common challenges together, and uh, to create a safer and larger vital common space for our union. The most recent terrorist attack last December in Strasbourg was another stark reminder that the threats against our society and our security are still very real. Now it was Strasbourg, but before it was London, Berlin, Barcelona, Brussels, and several other of our European cities. This also shows that uh, these threats continue to be common and shared, and that we must talk them together. This is why in the last few years we have been working in order to build our security architecture, to build a security union, to better support and strengthen cooperation between member states concerning various security threats, including countering radicalization, boosting cyber security, cutting terrorist financing, as well as improving information exchange, thereby signaling a new era for security in Europe. Because the security threats we know today know no borders. No country can face them alone. This is why in the European Union we are working to make our migration border and security information system interoperable. A safer and more secure Europe starts way beyond our European continent. This is why we have been forging trustful partnership to tackle terrorism with countries such as the United States, Canada, the Western Balkans, Turkey, and the Middle East, as well as Northern Africa. A safer and more secure world goes also beyond those physical borders and must be extended to the virtual and cyber world. This is why, for example, we have developed an unprecedented partnership with big Internet companies, such as Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Microsoft, 
in the form of the EU Internet Forum, an initiative I had taken four years ago, in order to detect and remove terrorist content online. And this cooperation has produced very tangible results. Our approach has uh, proven to be successful. Facebook recently announced that in the second and third quarters of 2018, it removed 99% of the terrorist content before even being detected by a user. Europe has been at the forefront of this issue too. Our efforts have inspired the international community to set up the Global Internet Forum on Combating Terrorism. But we need to be quicker and more effective. That's why we have uh, taken it um, one step further by proposing EU-wide legislation to ensure that terrorist content online is effectively taken down within just one hour by a company, whether small or big. This is a game changer. We adapt to the changing world around us without adapting or altering our basic principles, freedom of speech and the freedoms of the Internet overall. Because security is not and cannot be a final aim per se. Security is a means towards the final goal of a good, livable, well-ordered, democratic society. My dear friends, I want to come back where I started and the importance of LSE's historic motto. The importance, importance of understanding, of knowing, and of remembering. Some tend to forget the dark past of our history and take the prosperity, democracy, and all the progress achieved so far for granted. There are voices in Europe telling their citizens to be afraid of the migrants, of their neighbors, of the others. And this is where nationalism appears as a road to follow. What a misconception, indeed. There is a big difference between being patriot or being nationalist. The difference is very, very clear. A patriot loves his or her country, but a nationalist, in order to exist, has to hate the country of the other. And Europe and the whole world has suffered from that in the past. Sixty years ago, with uh, the creation of the European Union, we ended this um, anomaly of thinking. In Europe, you can be both a patriot and a European. And the strong link between our citizens is precisely solidarity. If we precisely look back in history to understand better, we see that we cannot let ourselves to be guided by fear. Europe was not built out of fear. It was built on aspiration and hope, on the commitment to work and live together in a spirit of trust and solidarity. This is the essence of Europe. 
Migration and security issues have tested that, but they have also shown the only answer to that. Well, thank you very much for your attention. Now I'm ready to listen to your ideas and questions, and of course to discuss with you, because our generation has a duty to work for your generation, but in order to achieve its goals, has to listen to you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Uh, in a short space of time, you've raised many topics and covered a number of issues, and there are lots of people in the audience, uh, I'm sure, with um, uh, a lot of questions and, indeed, expert knowledge. Perhaps I could just begin with one question. I wonder whether one of the biggest constraints you have as commissioner with your portfolio is the difference between what we might call the expectations of what the European Union can or should be doing and the actual competences or the capabilities, the powers of the European Union to act. We read in our newspapers uh, many different uh, reports which seem to say the European Union should be doing more. The European Union should fix it. And I've just taken one example from a newspaper here. Two weeks ago, The Guardian was saying, quote, the European Union has been condemned over the conditions in Greece's largest refugee camp, where Oxfam reports women are having to wear nappies at night for fear of leaving their tents. Oxfam details what it describes as the increasingly dangerous state of the European Union-sponsored Morea camp on the island of Lesbos, where a 24-year-old man from Cameroon was found dead yesterday as temperatures plunged below zero. The Morea camp has nearly 5,000 uh, vulnerable people uh, living, uh, who are uh, in a desperate position. There are 15,000 men, women, and children stranded on Lesbos, Hios, Kos, Samos, and Leros uh, in the eastern Aegean. And I wonder how we should interpret those reports. Are those reports a condemnation that the European Union is failing to tackle the problem? Or are those reports simply reflecting that our expectations that the European Union could solve the problem are misplaced because the capabilities, the powers, the competences that the Commission has to act are perhaps more limited than readers of newspapers might understand? So don't accuse the European Union. If the European Union was given more power, if we had managed to... Uh, to reach a level of, of organization where the European Union would have become a federal system, the situation would be totally different. Yes. You know that the, the responsibility in implementing the European policy is a national responsibility. What we do is to coordinate and to provide with the necessary technical, financial, and practical support member states to do their job. When I read in the newspapers that the European Union is not doing as much as uh, was supposed to do. I'm really wondering where they know what is the European Union. Mm. How did it start? And uh, whether we really want to complete the European project. 
because it is half done, half finished. The Lisbon Treaty was very clear on that. But in the meantime, we didn't do as Europeans, and the responsibility is political, and it has to how member states see the European Union. So this is my remark on that, because the report of Guardian is correct. I confirm it. I had the same report from our own people on the ground, because we have deployed a big number of experts on the Greek islands, on the hotspots in Italy, and in other parts of Europe. And we know that the situation, especially in this camp, is dire. Okay. We have been monitoring that. So we are ready to support even more the local authorities, but don't, uh, don't shoot the pianist. <laughs> okay. Now, I appreciate this distinction between our expectations and the capabilities of what the European Union or the Commission in particular can do. But when Oxfam criticizes the Morea camp in Lesbos, it refers to it as a European Union-sponsored camp. What does that mean? Well, well, it is not a sponsored camp. I explained before how do we support member states to tackle the situation on the ground. It's very easy to attack the European Union. But the European Union is not Brussels. The European Union is a combination of different elements, national and political elements. Member states are there. Recently, I have started changing the way I try to explain what the situation. I don't use the term member states. I use the term governments. But governments should know one thing, that they come and go. There was a shift. There was a big change in the year 2017, when the very first populist parties managed to gain power. So overnight, the stance adopted by the previous government changed. I don't want to name or shame countries here, but this is the reality. Okay. So we tried to convince them to understand that it is in their interest to support us because the real power, this is what I would like to tell to the ones that are studying European studies, is not as you might believe in the hands of the Commission. It's in the hands of the member states. And as I said, the policy of the member states is defined ideologically, politically, by their governments. But there is only one way to follow the future. Okay. We either stick together, cooperate, and decide to address this issue uh, together, or we shall be held accountable in the eyes of the younger generations if the European Union fails. Okay, that's very nice and clear. Let's take some questions. Can you simply say who you are? And please, because of the, uh, I expect many people wanting to ask questions, we'll take the gentleman in the white uh, here. There's a colleague with a microphone. It's coming to you. Can you simply say who you are and then ask the question? There are other occasions when you may be invited to give a speech at the LSE, but this is not it. <laughs> Hey, I'm Phil. I'm also from the European Institute. And um, first of all, of course, thank you very much for coming here and Kevin for organizing. Um, my question is like, I was actually quite surprised that you were picturing a success story somehow of um, the European action in the recent years. But to be honest, if we look at the actual facts, we see that Europe is still deeply divided. We, d we haven't been able to solve the migration crisis in the last three years. Um, you were talking about solidarity, but 
we don't really have a burden sharing system right now in the European Union. We haven't had that like since three years. Um, the drop migra of migrants itself is true, but on the other side, we have um, that comes to a cost. Like we have again seen this week that dozens of people died in the Mediterranean. So um, of course. It's easy to say that for me, and um, of course I know like it is a very hard discussion, like clearly, but as the European Union does have competence in this regard, and you're the person in charge, I ask you, how do you think do we actually get a solution at some point, and um, why isn't it possible to get any majority which we can actually enforce then um, for any solution? Okay, good, thanks. Can we take the gentleman... Uh, halfway up, uh, yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Jendrzej Pizik. I'm an immigrant myself, uh, so I, I can't say that I'm against migration. I'm, I'm extremely pro-migration. I can definitely see how badly it is managed right now. I think we have a very big problem with it. And you mentioned a very, very big populist argument that's being used in the Eurosceptic uh, right that says that migration brings all the threats to Europe and the European Union invites all the migration, takes away the power from national states to, uh, to uh, manage the migration within themselves. Uh, hence, the European Union is bad. Obviously, that's not a very sophisticated argument, but it's a very popular one. On the other side, I'm kind of tired of the argument that you used as a contrary, which is that um, since we have a huge problem with migration as a European Union, then, hence, we need more Europe. This is kind of the prescription that we have to every crisis that we see in the European Union. You're, uh, you've, you've been a minister in Greece, so you very well know that uh, the Greek crisis has been solved by that same prescription. Um, do you think that maybe the more Europe argument is not a solution, but maybe looking in the inefficiency of how the European Union is managed, and maybe the leadership model in the European Union, because we can see that the Germany has kind of unilaterally decided how we deal with our migration, with the migration crisis. Maybe that's the source of, um, of, of uh, further reform. Okay, thanks. In this round, one last question. Uh, the lady in the very middle, just on your row, if you could pass the microphone. Yes? Yeah. It's coming from your uh, right. It's coming from your right. <laughs> Two microphones. There's no pressure. Just give us the question. Um, in terms of climate change, how do you think that that's going to amplify the challenges of migration and security? And I'm just wondering how that factors into your own thinking. Okay. Well, so uh, the first question was, was about um, uh, why isn't the... Uh, more of a solution, why no majority to act? Well, you said something about um, the situation as you depicted, as you described it. I fully agree with you. But let's remember what was the situation at the very beginning of the migration crisis. I remind you that in the year 2015, more than 1.2 million people managed to cross the European borders, arrive in Central Europe. They had one thing in their mind, how to arrive in Germany, in Denmark, and in Sweden, for obvious reasons. The European borders were not managed at all. We are not protected. And there we had to clarify one thing, that Europe was not invaded, as some people say. There were desperate people, 
fleeing war, persecution, dictatorship. We all know what happened in this part of the world. Geopolitical instability, terror. And as I explained before in my, during my introductory remarks, we had a duty, moral and political duty, to open our doors and our arms, because the ones who are in need of international protection must have it. The irregular migrants, another issue, and we are very clear on that. They must follow legal ways, legal pathways to come to Europe. At that moment, Europe was totally unprepared, and we set everything up from scratch, believe me. Even the portfolio of the commissioner was not existing at that time. Mm. We started building the architecture of migration policy. And in a very short period, we managed to adopt the European agenda on migration. And there is the answer. At that time, in the year 2015, we managed to convince member states to cooperate, to show more solidarity and responsibility, the basic principles that before upon which Europe is built. Just to remind you that, especially for the ones who are studying European studies, that the term solidarity is enshrined in the founding text of the treaty 17 times. Without solidarity, Europe cannot exist. Solidarity among member states, solidarity also towards these desperate people. So this is what we did. We started building the architectural migration policy. And today we can say that we have made a great progress. In the meantime, things change. Because the populists have found a very convincing pretext in the eyes of a quite big part of the population. They have presented this phenomenon as a threat for our societies and for our citizens. So it became immediately not only an existential, but also a political issue. And the European democracy was confronted and is still confronted with a huge challenge. So that's how we work. And in the meantime, we did a lot. We decided to better manage our borders. We created the European Borders and Coast Guard. It's there now. And I expect from member states to support us in view of our efforts to finalize the legislation in the European uh, Parliament very soon. We heard about the common European asylum system that was not existing before. There was nothing before. Although Europeans should remember one thing, that we... One out of three of the Europeans, they are descendants of refugees or migrants, even, even here, without knowing you. If I ask you a question of whether you have a member of your family, a migrant or refugee, you will, 60% of yours will have someone. We shouldn't forget what happened in the past. Large parts of our population were deported, and this continent had suffered in the past. So it is the moment to behave in a more responsible way. Coming now to more Europe, the second question. Yes, we say more Europe, but in a qualitative way. Europe has to move forward. We have to complete the European project. We have to adopt common strategies and policies on all issues. As I said before, it was half done. We have to complete. This is the answer to the challenges of our times. Europe, in order to exist in the future, needs to adopt First of all, a common foreign policy, a common security policy, a common economic policy. I don't want to get deeper in the economy because if they start from there, the economic crisis. But if we had adopted a common economic policy before we adopt a common currency, 
maybe the situation could be better today. Because me as a Greek, one day I woke up having in my pocket the strongest currency in the world, but not necessarily with the strongest economy in the world. Very simple what I say, but I'm sure you understand. So, more Europe. Complete the European project. And the catalyst in order to move forward is how we manage the refugee and the migration crisis. How can we respond in a very concrete and clear way to our citizens who demand, very rightly, more security? And this is our job. And the European Union has taken the lead on that. We have proposed to all governments very concrete projects of how can we address these issues. And now we go back to what I said in my previous reply. How do some governments think and behave? And I don't hesitate to tell you that there are politicians right now in Europe who seem to ignore or not having studied history. This is what I said before when I, when I said that we risk to revert to the dark uh, moments of our recent history. It's only 60 years ago that our parents and our grandparents had experienced two tragic wars. More than 70 million people died. And when I said that we take liberty, freedom, democracy for granted, think about it. You know that in this room right now, we are representatives of two, maybe three generations. We had been the privileged generations in mankind's history. We have never lived a war. Don't take it for granted. We have to uphold what we have achieved in the meantime. And don't forget that they once these wise people, in the aftermath of the Second World War, although they had very fresh in their memory what had happened, they were victims of this war. They decided to create the European Union. They wanted to give a legacy, a legacy, to leave a legacy for the next generations. And this legacy is today in danger. And finally, the catalyst is not the economic crisis, as some believed in the past, but the refugee and the crisis and the security crisis. Okay. So this is the answer. More Europe, we have to complete the European project and respond in a very concrete way to the demands of our citizens, and especially to, of the future generation. Then there was a the very interesting question about uh, the relationship between climate change and migration. Yes, it was a short question. It <laughs> requires a very big answer. You know that one of the root causes of migration today is the climate change. We can see it in Africa. I have been traveling from one top of Africa to the other in order to engage these countries and cooperate with us in order to manage, manage migration. Believe me, the threat is there. And this threat might knock on the door of other continents in the near future. But you see how governments react on that. Again, I don't want to make any reference to some big countries in the world, but if we do not take care of the climate today, our children, if not our generations, will suffer very, very soon. A large part of the population in Africa is deported because of that was pushed to kids to, to leave their, 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 their lands and their homes and their villages. The same happens also in Asia. So we're not far away from living, from being in the need to address a major climate change. So it's a question of responsibility now of the leaders today. Because <coughs> leaders, this is something that politicians must understand. 
will never judge, be judged objectively in real time, but according to the impact their ideas and their acts will have in the long run. And one of the issues that uh, must uh, be seen in this way is exactly what you touched with your question, and thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, let's take some more uh, questions. Can we take the uh, lady in the middle uh, here in the black? Yeah. A bit louder. Okay, yeah. Can you make sure you speak nice and loud in the microphone? Yeah. Can you hear me? Thank you very much. My name is Allegra, and I'm an international migration student. Uh, linking to the Oxfam report um, that Professor introduced before, I just wanted to know that um, what is your answer to the agreement on the fact that the European Union is keeping the situation on the Greek islands as it is, as a deterrence measures to deter people to come to Europe? And also in this regard, uh, is the European Union planning to intervene in Samos? Okay. The, the European, the European uh, uh, Union is monitoring the situation on all islands, also in Italy, in Malta, and other parts uh, of Europe. Uh, we have uh, continuously uh, reports on what's happening there. That's why I said in the beginning that we are supporting the competent authorities, national authorities, but we have at the same time deployed our own people there. The situation is not good. It's becoming better and better, and we have been given uh, pledges on behalf of uh, the authorities that uh, they will comply to what we have advised to do. But this measure is not a measure of deterrence. What we have done in this part of, of um, the European Union on the sea borders with Turkey is, first of all, our priority was to save lives. You notice that um, the numbers have gone down. In the beginning, we had a lot of victims. The second is to better manage the common European borders. And the third is to fully implement what is foreseen in the so-called EU-Turkey statement. Uh, it's not an agreement, because if it were an agreement, it had to be ratified by the parliaments, and it would take centuries to be done. So this gentleman's agreement between the European Union and Turkey works. That's why the numbers have gone down. I remind you that in the year 2015, more than 14,000 people were crossing the uh, sea borders of the Aegean Sea every day. Now the numbers have gone down to 60 persons per day, which is a very manageable situation. We have been helping and supporting the Greek authorities financially, practically, and uh, operationally. And I believe that very soon these images will disappear because for me it is shameful that there are still people suffering on the islands. We know why it has happened. So we have advised the authorities to step up their efforts in order to reply positively or in a negative way to the ones who had uh, submitted their applications uh, uh, to, to, to ask for asylum. And I come back to what I said before. The ones who are in need of international protection will have it. The others have to go back to be returned and follow legal pathways if one day want to come to Europe. And this is the last point I would like to raise. For the very first time in Europe, we have adopted legal migration rules, something that was not existing before. We have deployed a big number of uh, uh, migration attaches to our delegations across uh, the world, especially in Africa and in Asia. And now we can say that we're in a better situation. But the images, as they have been depicted by The Guardian, and uh, you can see it in the Oxfam uh, report, 
I'm sure that very soon will not be there anymore. I understood implicitly in the question, uh, Commissioner, that uh, there's a sense that the European Union's agreement with Turkey was treating migrants more as a security threat than as a humanitarian issue. No, no. I I said before, it was uh, mostly humanitarian and not uh, for security reasons. And let me clarify one thing here. There is a misunderstanding. We shouldn't uh, amalgamate migrants with terrorists. I'll tell you something very simple. On all these tragic events that took place in Europe, with terrorist attacks, 99% of the perpetrators, unfortunately, were homegrown nationals of, of the countries. So the question is, first, why integration failed, and second, why all these young people turned their guns against their homeland. But populists try to interpret in a different way. They say that in these, within these flows there are also terrorists. No, it is not true. As far as, as, far as the EU Turkey statement is concerned, let me add one more element. In Turkey, there are right now approximately 3.5 million uh, refugees. And Turkey is hosting these desperate people there. Without support, we have to block approximately 6 billion uh, euros. This money does not go to Turkey, but to UNHCR, to IMO, in order to provide these people with medical support, clean water, education for their children, and shelter. So the answer is clear. Only for humanitarian reasons we have adopted this agreement with Turkey. Okay, let's take some more, uh, qu- more questions. I'm sorry? One more round. We've discussed. Uh, <laughs> can we take the um, lady over here, please? Negotiable. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Hannah. I'm sorry, can you put it really yes. close? We can't hear. Hello. Um, my name is Hannah, and since we're talking about the A bit response. Louder, since we're talking about the response, I was wondering if you could address two agreements that are currently in the negotiation phase. So the first being the temporary agreement for those rescued at sea, and the second, the draft proposal for protected entry procedures. I'm sorry. The, the first was the temporary agreement for what? For those rescued at sea. For those rescued at sea. And the second and one? And the second, the draft proposal for protected entry procedures. And in particular, if you could focus on the content and your expectation for these agreements. So the first has to do with... Uh, the, the, those rescued at sea. And, the, and the, repeat the second one. <laughs> the second, the draft Give proposal... Give us five words instead of a, a paragraph. Protected entry procedures. Sorry. Safe and legal pathways, protected entry procedures. Protected entry entry procedures. for the ones who want to come to Europe. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, as far as the second part of your question is concerned, the entry procedures are very simple. I told before that for the first, first time we have adopted legal migration policy. Let me tell you something very simple. Europe will never become a fortress. It's clear. No. But it is true that we have to better manage our borders. And the ones who want to come to Europe must follow legal pathways. In this way, they do not expose themselves to to the the risks and dangers that you know. 
in the hands of scrupulous smugglers. So, this is the answer. They have to respect the rules and the laws of the European Union. At the same time, Europe is open because Europe will be in need of migrants in the future. And we work on that. According to studies we have in our hands, in, within the next 10 years, Europe will be in need of a big number of migrants. It goes up to 5 million people. But they have to follow legal pathways. And the first part, the part of your question had to do with rescue. Well, you know, search and rescue in the sea is a national responsibility. It's the responsibility of national coast guards. We are supporting national coast guards to do better their job. We provide themselves with the necessary financial and technical support. But not only the, uh, in this part of the world, in Southern Europe. Right now, we train the Libyan Coast Guard. We have deployed a, a, a project of cooperation with the Coast Guards of other countries in Northern Africa. I've been traveling from Morocco to Tunisia, from Tunisia to Egypt. And we have already seen the results. It is also true to say that we have a big problem. The problem is in Libya. In Libya, the situation is still chaotic. And although we have, a, 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 let's say, an interlocutor, which is the legitimate government of Tripoli, they are very weak. They do not have full control of the country. And the rest of this big country is unfortunately under the control of militias and smugglers. That's where these dire, uh, these appalling images are coming to us from time to time. But we try to help them, help the ones who are saving lives, and also uh, cooperate with neighboring countries. Because recently in Niger, Niger is behaving very well. They uh, cooperate with us. They cooperate with other countries in the region. Believe me, it is not easy because we are confronted with other problems in this part of the world. There are some countries that do not want to take back their nationals. They don't even recognize their nationals. So some desperate people, they live in limbo. They don't have a country to go, but they don't have a country to return. And these are the tragic situations in this part. But rescue and re search and rescue is part of our policy, and I believe that the results are there. More than 800,000 people till now during the last four years have been rescued. How it happened? In the way I, I, I told before. Our priority is to save lives. The second is to fight smugglers. The third is to better manage our borders. As I told you before, we start from scratch. But now we have the schemes, the mechanisms, and the political determination to even do more in the future. Okay, let's take the two last questions very quick, uh, and I'm going to invite a, uh, a quick answer. Can we take the uh, lady in the white at the very back, please? Yeah, on the right. Um, you mentioned that uh, before the 2015 crisis, Europe did not have any mechanism to control migration or refugee flows. I'm wondering why the Temporary Protection Directive has not been used since it has been passed in, the, in 2001, and I'm wondering why the European Union has not used this directive, which its core purpose is to assist uh, persons that need protection, refugees. Okay, great. Can I ask? Last uh, 
question. Can we take the gentleman right over here, please? It's, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, hello, my name is Eliel, and I'm from Sweden. And as you might know, we're one of the few countries who did to do sort of internal border controls now against the Schengen. We're one out of five, I think. And this has been going on, and we recently renewed it for another six or eight months. And I'm wondering how the EU will make sure that this has become a new norm, that it doesn't become new internal border security due to migration. Thank you. Okay, great. So the first question was about the uh, Temporary Protection Directive 2001. Why wasn't that activated, used before the crisis of 2015? This temporary, this temporary um, arrangement gave birth to what we are trying to do to adopt a common European asylum system. We all remember Dublin. But Dublin died in the year 2015. Dublin, as it was conceived in the year 2001, was not in a position to respond to the new needs as they emerged after 2014-15, when we had this big number, these flows of millions of people trying to cross the European borders. And the victims were, first of all, these people, but also the frontline member states. Don't you think and don't you agree that it was unfair for countries like Italy, Malta, Spain, Greece, huh, to have on their shoulders this heavy burden? It was the moment to show solidarity. And this is what we decided in the year 2015 in Luxembourg, and we adopted this relocation scheme. It started working, but not in a very successful way, because in the meantime we had these political and governmental changes, and some governments changed stance overnight, as I said before. But we are not there anymore. Now we are in view of adopting the new Dublin, which is future-proof and more fair that solidarity will prevail, as, not as a principle, but uh, as uh, a policy. And this is something that brings us in front of our huge responsibilities as governments and as European institutions. We're about to finalize this new Dublin within the next two months. It is true to say that the clock is ticking. We are running out of time. Believe me, we are Pressurize. We are putting a lot of pressure on all governments to finalize before the European elections. Let's hope that we shall make it, because we do not know what the future is holding for us. Yesterday it was Southern, um, South Europe. Tomorrow, we don't know. Some time ago, I had a meeting with ministers of interior of many countries, and uh, I listened very carefully to what the police minister of interior said. At the end, I told him, because the Polish government has a totally different approach on all these issues. So I asked him, it was three months ago, it was in Lyon, in presence of the prime minister of France. <coughs> if we suppose that something happens in Ukraine one day, and you have one million people on your borders, on your land borders with Ukraine, hmm? What are you going to do? You will call me in Brussels asking for solidarity. This is what other countries are asking from you right now. And believe me, I had no idea that in one month's time we would have a crisis in Ukraine.
Let's hope that it will not happen. But if it happens, there will be approximately one million people trying to cross the European borders. So it is important to adopt a common European asylum system, together with a better protection and management of our borders. This is what the European Union is doing, trying also to convince member states to follow and adopt our policy. And this is the reply to your point. 2001 had nothing to do with 2015. But as I said, let's be better prepared for the future. And as far as Schengen is concerned, Sweden, and Sweden well, Schengen is also in the framework of my responsibilities. And personally, I'm very sensitive on Schengen because I belong to a generation that still remembers how Europe was 25 years ago. I remember that when I left my country to visit other European countries when I was still a young student. When I went back home, I had my passport replaced because of thousands of stamps. I don't know whether you, you don't know that, but we had this interrail ticket. You remember that? We were traveling with $150 across Europe, and we were sleeping in the train in order to save a bit of money. But overnight, things changed. Your generation, my children, live in a wider space. Free movement has to be protected because Schengen is the most tangible example of European integration. If Schengen collapses, this will be the end of Europe. And nowadays, because of the migration crisis and of all these security concerns, Schengen is at stake. We have to uphold and defend Schengen. And we could also see that in your neighborhood. There were frictions on the borders between Sweden and Denmark. At that time, I had to discuss this issue with my good friends there. Finally, a solution was found. But defending and protecting Schengen is defending and protecting Europe. Before we finish, Kevin, if you allow me, what we discuss about tonight has to do not with the European history, nor with what is happening in the Mediterranean and in other parts of Europe and in the world, because it has become, as we said, a global issue. It has to do with the future of our Union. We are in the United Kingdom, and you did very well not to raise the issue of Brexit here, because you would have put me in a very difficult position, and this is the reason why you don't have many commissioners here during, during this period. But I can tell you I could never imagine Europe without the United Kingdom. That's the only thing I can say. But as for the rest of the Europeans are concerned, it's very important for all of us, and they think that this academic institution is doing this job, to remind everybody what happened to Europe some decades ago. And not allowed to revert to the past. And exactly the opposite. To continue building and completing the European architecture. This is the only guarantee in order to live in peace, in stability, in progress. It's the only way for you young people to have your horizon open and auspicious. Otherwise, you risk, we risk, not to be the generations that had never lived a tragedy. And you know very well that if it ever happens, it will not be like before. The romantic wars have finished.
So let's continue working together, building a more cohesive society, completing the European project. European project is the most important historic uh, event and achievement of all times. Thank you. Just before I invite you to uh, thank our, our speaker, uh, our speaker has a very tight uh, schedule. So can I ask you on this side of the theatre to remain in your seats whilst uh, Dimitris Zavromopoulos vacates the, the theatre? Then he can keep to schedule. That will be, I know, very much uh, appreciated. So can you remain seated until our speaker vacates through that door? So... Thank you very much indeed for making the, the it, it, time it, to come. It is, it is for my security. <laughs> <laughs>